Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Impact Podcast. Listen on for insights into philanthropy, impact investing and sustainability. Hi and welcome to Philanthropy Impact's World in My Shoes series for our members. With the long-awaited school's white paper being published last week by the Department for Education, we wanted to bring a short discussion on how to support a client who may be interested in funding solutions to equity concerns in education. We know that the first steps into an individual's impact journey can be a daunting and confusing space. Clients are now looking to their trusted professional advisors more than ever before to support them in their first steps into philanthropy and ESG impact investing. So this series has been established to support you, the trusted advisor, in giving your clients best practice advice and to know when to signpost to trusted partners. My name is Zofia Sahanek and I'm the Director of Membership here in uh, Philanthropy Impact and the person to talk to if you'd like to know more about our training and how to make the most of your membership with us. You can reach me in the chat or in my email, which is shared at the end if you're watching on YouTube. As always, we will keep this discussion strictly to 30 minutes, um, but we do encourage you to use the chat to introduce yourself, share your LinkedIn, make comments, and also pose questions you may have for our speakers. This leads me to introduce our chat for today. We welcome Dan Corey. Dan is Chief Executive of the Social Sector Think Tank New Philanthropy Capital, or MPC. And joining Dan, we welcome Dr. Lorna Goodwin, who is the Executive Director at First Star Academies UK, and Dr. Alison Boddy, who's a Senior Lecturer in Philanthropic Studies and Social Policy at the University of Kent. Thank you all for joining today, and I'll hand over to you now, Dan, to make a start. Thank you. Thank you, Sophia, and hi, everybody. Um, hope we're going to enjoy this rather whistle-stop uh, tour of education and what, um, what philanthropists can do and what advisors can and help their clients to understand. Um, as Sophia said, I'm Chief Executive of MPC. We've done um, quite a lot of work on education over the years, um, looking at issues like um, uh, well-being um, and data uh, and how people can make a difference if you go onto our website and put education in, you'll, you'll get a lot of uh, resources up there. And I'm personally very interested in this topic, uh, not least because I was a special advisor at the Department of Education for a couple of years. Um, uh, so I got a lot into a lot of these issues and I know how difficult they are and how important actually philanthropy is to solving some of them. Um, so before we start, I'm just gonna get uh, right into questions and things. I'm gonna get our two speakers to just say a little bit about themselves. Um, let me start off with Lorna. Okay, thanks very much, Dan. Um, so I'm the Executive Director for First Star Scholars UK, which is a national programme which encourages ambition and empowers young people from care backgrounds to aspire to higher education. Um, it's a long-term prep programme. We run um, each cohort over four years and through their GCSEs and their post-16. And what it enables us to address is both academic, life skills, mental health, um, all those things that, that can impact and be barriers to them um, going forward. So it's a partnership. Um, it's a partnership with the philanthropists, it's a partnership with the universities, and it's a partnership with the young people. Thanks, Laura. I know it's a very interesting programme. I remember when you were starting to just play around with it and kick it off and bring it over from the States. So it's, it's great to hear it's going and, and things are going well. Yeah. Ali, what about you? Hi, I'm Ali Boddy. I'm a senior lecturer at the Centre for Philanthropy um, at the University of Kent. Um, and it's wonderful to be here today, so thank you very much for inviting me. I specialise particularly in children's charities, children's early intervention services, and also philanthropy and education, specifically looking at how children's experiences are shaped by uh, philanthropy and voluntary action, and also how children and young people learn to become philanthropic citizens as well. 
No, great, great, Ali. It's a fascinating mix of things that you've put all together. <laughs> I think that must be must be pretty unique. Um, so, just just to kick off, and I'm going to get into a bit of a general discussion to start with, and just reflecting on our own experience at MPC, where we have sort of philanthropy clients, and when it comes to education. They often say it, it's, you know, schools and early years and all it's just too big. How can I, as a philanthropist, make a difference, really? Um, and they slightly back away from it. And then some of them will think, well, you know, I can't I can't change everything, but maybe I can uh, I can work on a group of, of young people who are having a bad experience and uh, I can do something on that. that. And we'll, we'll hear a bit later from Laura a little bit more on that. Um, and some of them then think about, well, maybe I can try some innovation. Um, that the state wouldn't pay for, and I can try it. And then if it works, maybe the state will roll it out. For instance, you know, changes in curriculum and stuff. And, and sometimes maybe they will fund things which try and bring players in an area together, because we know that the outcomes for children don't only depend on whether the school's doing well, it's whether they're talking to sort of social services and, uh, and everybody else. So it, it's a very, I think it's a very interesting issue when you're trying to advise clients uh, and, and find their way through to what they want to invest in in education. But first of all, I just want to step back a second because there's an awful lot happening, of course, in terms of schools and early years and so forth. We've had COVID, which has thrown everything. I think there was stuff on the, the news yesterday about, or maybe even today, I'm forgetting which day it is, about how uh, your very, very young children have kind of missed out on a lot of social skills. We've got a very tight labor market at the minute. People are worried with the cost of living going up. What will that mean for teacher recruitment? What will it mean for the parents of a lot of the kids uh, more, from more deprived uh, areas? And we've then got, of course, the, um, the white paper which Sophia mentioned, which came out last week, which had these quite ambitious targets, although they were way into the future, about getting 90% of primary school children up to the expected targets. And that's quite a big jump, because I think we're about 65% or something at the minute particularly in some more deprived areas. So lots of all that, and people were saying, well, you know, it was very ambitious, but it wasn't quite clear how anyone was gonna meet these things because they want a lot more money. So I'm just gonna kick off by asking, um, I'll ask you, Ali, first. I mean, what do you think the whole context, how does it feel to you? Are we in a good place in, in education, going the right direction, or are we in a, in a strange place and we don't quite know what to do, or how do you see it? I think you're absolutely right at the start of seeing that education is part of a much wider ecosystem and children's lives are part, much, uh, are part of a much wider ecosystem. So at the moment, actually, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I find the whole outlook pretty depressing, but I don't think that that doesn't mean that we don't have to be hopeful. We've seen year on year funding cuts per pupil for children and young people, and that's continued. Um, we've also seen, which kind of worries me slightly, is huge cuts in early intervention and support services that surround children and families. And so actually, when we try and kind of solve some of these issues of raising the attainment gaps, for example, closing those gaps, we're dealing with children who might not have eaten properly, we're dealing with children who are maybe facing goodness knows what challenges within their home, own homes and environments. And so I do think the most important thing we kind of have to take into account at the moment, and I think the white paper sort of misses really, is that ecosystem model and thinking about actually everything that's kind of surrounding education as well as education itself. Um, I think there's an awful lot of fantastic charities and teachers and schools are on the front lines and on, on the ground trying to solve some of these issues. But I do think actually we've got a teacher retention crisis at the moment. We've got a funding crisis in education. We've got increased attainment gaps after COVID. Yet we've got a system that is so still entirely focused, in my opinion, 
on a catch-up agenda and on prescribed targets and attainment targets, which actually in some ways aren't really reflective of what I think overall education should be about. So I think that's quite a pessimistic um, view of where we are at the moment. Um, but um, but I do think it can be hopeful. I do think there are opportunities and I think there's opportunities for innovation. I think there's opportunities for showing different ways of being. And I think philanthropy and philanthropy advisors have a really, really important role in, in developing some of those, those different ways of being. No, thanks, Ali. I might come back to you in a little bit to give, you know, if, see if you've got some examples of the kind of places where you think, even if you're not that optimistic at the minute, where sort of extra funding and, and you know, expertise and so forth could make a difference. But let, let me ask Lorna then, what's your answer to that general question? How do you see the world at the minute? I, I think there's elements of what Ali said in terms of the, it can be quite disheartening. There are 66 kind of spots in the UK where they've identified um, underachievement and, and things like that. I think um, one of the challenges is it's not about providing the same opportunities for all, which is one of the things the white paper talks about. It's not about equality, it's about equity. It's about the cultural capital and the resources that surround each child, um, whatever um, circumstance they're in. And I think there needs to be much more attention around the individual child than groups of children in, in hot spots or cold spots or whatever they want to call them, um, and how we address that. There's always been um, closing the gap programs for years and years and years that haven't closed those gaps or haven't closed them sufficiently. Then COVID's come and opened them even wider, as, as we all know. I, I think, you know, if, if, if we're still playing levelling up and catching up, there needs to be a much greater attention on the needs of the individual young people. Um, and, and that involves engaging with schools, charities, other groups working with the youngsters around, whether it's mental health, education, life skills, functional skills, whatever it is that um, actually addresses what those young people need to empower them to fulfill their potential. And I think it's just too easy to scoop everyone into the same baskets across country. No, I, I think there's a lot in that, Lorna. I mean, I think one of the one of the sort of, if you like, mysteries in education policy and schools policy in, in recent decades was the great success of London Challenge. So London schools were sort of way behind everybody. Then something happened, whether it was the London Challenge scheme or something else, I don't know. And now London, of course, and it's I think it's mentioned in the white paper, are is way ahead of, of most places, despite having a kind of you know very diverse population and a lot of people with England as English as second language and so forth. But I mean, you got any thoughts about why on earth that's been and why we can't just do that in other parts of the country? I think there was there's a significant investment in in um, meeting the the challenges around a metropolitan area like like London, um, and it's interesting that it's not one of the areas that's on the um, white, it's highlighted in the white paper, so that they're still kind of in advance of that. Um, I think there's there's we're missing some of the things that perhaps had more support. Um, Ali mentioned the fact that there's been a significant de-investment in um, support for young people, whether it's in youth groups, whether it's in schools, early intervention. And the investment in, in the London Challenge had a lot of other things surrounding it. And we don't have those in place very much anymore now. And I think it, it's investment in human capital. What is the cultural capital of each young person? What do they have in their, 
their um, family setting beyond their schooling that is going to, to help them. And I think we've lost a lot of that, not just in London, but across the country. No, I mean, it's interesting, Lorna. And I wonder, Ali, does that mean, you know, let's say you're a, you're a philanthropist who, who cares about these, this, these sort of academic inequalities and achievement inequalities. And you, you might think, well, you know, what we've got to do is get the children up to maths and reading and, and so forth, writing. But maybe you think, actually, I should fund something like visits to museums for children who for children who never get them otherwise. And that sort of picks up some of what Lorna's talking about, some of those other things. I mean, does that make sense or is that sort of the wrong place to put your money if you really care about those sort of things? I think that makes sense. But I think it's also looking at um, a bit broader than that. So if, for example, we want to check, we, we want to close some of those gaps. I entirely agree with what Lauren was saying there about the support services that are surrounding. I, I, I'm not sure if, if trips, to, I think trips to museums are very valuable, but I think that has to be a wider set of support services. So actually, I think we want to be really helping deprived young people achieve um, in education. I think we need to see a refunding in youth services. I think we need to see a refunding in mental health services. Um, I think we've got some huge issues that sort of that are impacting here. For example, children and young people now waiting between two and five years for ADHD or ASD assessments, which we know impacts more on our disadvantaged communities when those who can afford can now go private, do very often go private. So I think it's actually about let's look, as I, as I said at the beginning, let's look at the ecosystem that's surrounding our schools and actually think about where we want to support there now of course again we come back to that idea of that just being a huge challenge we're not just talking about the leveling up of gender in education we're talking about all societal issues there aren't we so I do think philanthropists have to take some time to think really carefully about actually what part of that system is really matters to them what part of that system where can they make the most difference in that system and actually go with a really targeted um, approach to that and again I absolutely agree with Lorna that there is such an importance here about partnership we are so lucky in this country that we have so many teachers and so many schools and so many practitioners who are experts on what works and what doesn't um, and actually I think it's about having conversations with them and also having conversations with children and young people themselves about what matters to them and what matters in their lives and bringing that together in actually trying to shape some of our responses and I don't think that always has to be on the individual philanthropist I think there's a lot of charities there's a lot of research there's a lot of people out there who already ask these questions I think it is about collaboratively bringing that together to find shared solutions. Yeah, no, I, I think you think you're right. I mean, that, that's the way things have got to be. I mean, we've had the occasional rather big thing funded by, if you like, philanthropic money and charities have done it. If you like the origins of Teach First, or if you go back to the early academy schools, whatever one thinks of that, you know, it was, it was sort of led by that sort of thing. The other thing that I just wanted to, to come to you on, Lorna, because one of the interesting things about interventions is, is, is evaluating them and whether they work and using data and so forth. And I think at Five Star, that's been very much... How, how the whole program's been built and developed. And therefore, it's, it, to some extent, it has allowed people to see that if they do uh, support you, um, you know, the results will flow. And it's not, not always the, the case, in, as, as we all know in philanthropy, that that happens. But one, do you want to say a little bit about, Lorna, about how, you, how that all works? Because you, you're dealing with a very difficult set of, of, of people, uh, trying to give them a, a chance they wouldn't get otherwise. And so you're, you're thinking all the time, how, do we know whether this is working or not, aren't you? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and in our sort of quest for a fairer society, we're we're very conscious of the data and and the need and the and the impact we can have. So we make sure we have that impact. But it is a partnership. We work with universities, with a, we work with educational specialists, we work with people who can bring that evaluative and um, monitoring models. That, that demonstrate the impact. And we also have developed a model that is A, very flexible, and B, um, very scalable um, across the country. Um, and, uh, you know, our, the, the outcomes for the young people are, you know, there to see in terms of the, the number of young people going on to university, their GCSE outcomes, and those sorts of things. But we're also very conscious that, um, what we engage is with a big family hug. It's not just about educational outcomes. It's a big family hug about life skills, about mental health, about the cultural capital that you need in order to be able to be successful, to remain in university. I mean, young, young care leavers are, are 38% more likely to drop out of a university course. So it's about those preparations. It's not just about whether they get there. Um, and it's about holding hands with them way beyond um, the basics of the programme. It's about the family they create. And because we have got that particularly vulnerable group um, who have a huge educational um, outcome gap uh, with, with many of their peers, it is about creating that sense of family. And actually, they do that themselves. They are the, the leaders in, in First Star. The programme is, is developed around them and each cohort is different. Um, and therefore, the impact on each individual is sustained by the individual's needs and, and our ability to flex and meet those um, and, and to work with funders about how that will happen um, and, and other charities as well. So it's, it's that unification of, of all those who can come together. It, it's the sort of thing Ali was, was mentioning earlier about that collaborative approach. Yeah, some very interesting things you said there, Lorna. I mean, I think one which it often gets missed in a lot of uh, work that charities and so forth do is that if you're working with somebody, a young person who's had a difficult life, you often need more than a sort of one-off intervention. They're going to need help through their life. Um, and that often gets missed out. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting, you were talking in the sense that, that there's kind of peer effects once they, and they help each other. Do, do you think your programme, and this is relevant to lots of programmes, is it the sort of skills that you can give them extra or is it a sort of boosting their confidence and sense of aspiration which is the key do you think because I think that's often people feel that's often at the heart of, of somehow how can you change that kind of trajectory and mindset for people who've who've sort of grown up without much aspiration you know didn't have role models all that kind of thing I think it I think it's both they're both equally important they get they draw inspiration from each other um, and we've learned that from them that that um, some are more aspirational when they arrive um, and that impacts the others. Um, but for everybody, who, whatever, whatever, wherever we come from in our life, we need relationships. That's that's the nature of of being a human being. And the impact of COVID has has exacerbated issues for young people in care, where placement um, upsets, etc., occur on a regular basis. Building those relationships, and that's what First Star does. It enables them to step into that arena and build those relationships with each other, with the youth coaches, with, with ourselves. That is then there to sustain them through the rest of their lives. It's not just about the actual programme itself. Um, and I, I think it's both. I think it's giving them um, soft skills as well as academic skills. 
the confidence that you were mentioning um, and just the confidence to talk to each other, to talk to us and then to stand up in front of other people and, and, and talk. Um, and to, you know, simple things like asking the question in the class and knowing that every question is an important question. Um, and and that, that we, we will manage all those interactions because asking a question in a class is a really big thing for a lot of young people. Um, so we make it a safe space to all questions are good questions and important questions. And it's as simple as that. So it's the soft skills, it's the relationships um, that bring together and that em embodies them in their academic um, pursuits as well. Is that how you see it as well, Ali? I do, and there's so much Lorna saying there that's kind of, um, that's yeah, music to my ears, to be honest, having spent a lot of time researching with children, young people in schools and in charities. And I think it is all of, I think it's both of those sides that we need. I think I, think I could probably comment more on the empowerment side of things. Um, so when I said at the beginning of this, um, uh, of this talk about that I kind of focus on this idea of philanthropic citizenship. I see that is, as a way of empowering children and young people, all children and young people, to identify themselves as kind of current social actors and enabled to be a, thinking about, well, actually, how can we help kind of shape the communities around us and, and respond to kind of some of these changes? And that really ties in with a lot of kind of what Lorna's saying here about actually feeling empowered and, and the importance of feeling empowered, the importance of cultivating critical curiosity to ask some, some of the kind of the big questions and the difficult questions that we face in life and that we face about actually questioning our own kind of positions, or the, the inequality that we see around us, uh, diversity issues, etc., and being able to really engage with them in a positive and kind of proactive way, um, which I think is another really important aspect of education that I, I would argue is kind of quite largely missed from the white paper as well, that kind of citizenship and that identifying yourself as a citizen um, and all citizenship being equally important. Yes, but there was a sort of phase, I can't remember which education secretary it was, because they do go rather quickly. <laughs> they do um, at the moment. <laughs> but there was, there was quite an emphasis at one point on character, wasn't yes. there? And, mm -hmm. and it was a slightly contested what that meant, because obviously we all believe in character, but, but what, what exactly that meant. I don't know what's happened. I think there was even some charities focusing on that, weren't there? Oh, there's, there's been a huge amount of philanthropic input around character education and a huge amount of critical date, uh, debate within education and academic circles on, on what kind of character education should and shouldn't be. Um, and I think it is important here to kind of emphasise that I've sort of focused more on the kind of citizenship part, because I do, I, I absolutely agree, of course, character is important and building up those ideas of character. But I think there's a number of educationists who feel like we need to go beyond character and we need to actually question the wider societal structures that sit around some of the inequalities that we face and that actually a young person having good character isn't going to mean that they genuinely, sorry, my dog's whining, that they're, they're going to succeed in life because actually sometimes those structural inequalities mean that you could have the best character in the world and you're still not going to. And what we need to do is question those structural inequalities that surround that. Right, I think your dog was agreeing quite very strongly yes. with you there, actually. Um, but, I, I, and, and then do you see that, Lorna? I mean, in generally, you know, either about five star or more generally, if you like, sort of educational interventions that, that you know, in a sense, you're often trying to give, give uh, young people skills. You're trying to make up to, for some of the 
things outside school, if you like, which they're not getting. You're trying to give them uh, the confidence to ask questions, as you said. And I mean, is that is that the, the sort of the ingredients of successful interventions? And I guess if it is, then, you know, one of the things that's always, I know frustrates teachers is that, you know, the limit to what they can do about some of this stuff. Yeah, I agree that there, there is, you know, I, I'm, you know, an ex-teacher myself, I understand the, the context and the limits, but I also think as, as a professional, we need to understand the needs of our young people. And I think the society that um, we, we're building for our young people does need that individualised approach and that understanding of um, if you don't have the social skills or the, the, the relationships within a classroom, to, to be able to um, either ask questions or engage with your peers in the classroom, it's going to impact your learning and it's going to impact your learning negatively. And then you have those gaps developing. Um, and, and for the one of actually understanding each other and creating a safe and caring environment in a classroom or a playground or wherever it might be, um, it, it, it's too important to, to not be part of the, and that, the, the educational experience and part of the curriculum. And if it's, you know, if we're going to talk about citizenship, kindness, being kind to other people in your classroom is part of that citizenship. And those are the sorts of things, you know, league tables. No, it's about kindness to each other and, and being, being a good citizen to each other will actually impact each other's education and my own education uh, as a young person much more than whether or not I can pass a particular algebraic um, test in, in maths in, in year five. It, it's for our society going forward, it's, it's, it's so important. It's an interesting thing that you saying that, Lorna, made me think because I, I, I'm, you can, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a surprise that I'm a big fan of the Education Endowment Foundation that tries to look at evidence and it got some more money in the, in the white paper. On the other hand, when I worked at the department, it was quite clear that if you had the right head teacher creating the right, right culture, the kind of culture you talked about, it really didn't matter what the, whether you did all the things that were supposed to work or not. And if you had the wrong culture and did all the things that were supposed to work, it wouldn't work. So there's something about the culture um, uh, that, that really matters, and which is hard to, you know, you see a great leader when, when, when you, you, know, you go to the school and you can just feel it, um, how you bottle that up and make it happen. has always been an issue. Let me, because we're just running out of time, just let me ask a, a kind of quite immediate question, I guess. Cost of living crisis is going to hit a lot of people. There are going to be a lot of, of children going to school without breakfast uh, and uh, cold and all the rest of it. Does that mean to the extent that charitable foundations and philanthropists and everything do anything in the next year, let's say, it's kind of trying to, I don't know, it, it's breakfast clubs uh, and food banks and that sort of thing. Is that more important in the end and actually adds more value than any anything else or or? Is that hard to say? Ali, what do you think? Sorry, hard question to throw at you at this <laughs> I point. I think it's incredibly hard to um, to give a, uh, to answer that question. But I do, th I do think, yes, there is an immediate crisis and we need to deal with that immediate crisis. We see schools time and time again. So our recent research now has shown us that over 70% of schools now turn to philanthropy and fundraising to meet these requirements. So yes, we do need to do that, but we simultaneously need to be challenging the the system that is that is creating this um, whilst doing that and so I think philanthropy has a really important act in both the immediate and the long term and we need to recognize the roles there. 
always difficult choices. I noticed that John has appeared. I suspect that means we're running out of time. You, you have run out of time, yes. Um, this is quite brilliant. Thank you, uh, Dan, Lorna, and Ali. Um, uh, you started off with a, it's a difficult environment, and there's all kinds of systemic issues, uh, structural inequalities, and cultural wars, of course. But at the same time, it's really quite enlightening and, um, and uh, very positive about some of the things you've talked about in terms of solutions and how people are addressing this. So thank you for that. So final words of wisdom, 30 seconds, starting with Lorna. Okay, my 30 seconds would be, we need to look to support scalable and sustainable um, interventions, models that unite education, charities, philanthropy, um, over the longer term. So we make a real difference. Um, and you were right, Ali, about there is an urgent need now, but there is also a need for philanthropists to, to pitch in on that and say, we need a longer term solution. We can't just lurch from one crisis to another. So scalable and sustainable models, I think, are, the, are, are an important way forward. Thank you, Lorna. Ali. I think Lorna said it beautifully. So I think the idea of collaboration and collaborative working, but I think I would add in that of um, listening to the experts as well, listening to experts from academia, listening to experts from, uh, from practice and teaching, but also listening to children and young people as experts of their own lives and their own lived experiences. Dan, yeah. they keep talking about philanthropy, uh, but uh, social investment, impact investing and stuff is really also important as well as uh, the role of professional advisors. So what's your final uh, 30 seconds? I'll give you actually 45 seconds if you wish. Oh no, oh no. Um, well, <laughs> I, th I, I totally agree with Ali. I think, I think that, that um, if we can get philanthropists and advisors can help with that to think about investing in education, giving kids from difficult backgrounds a good start is a fantastic thing to do. But sometimes education is one of those things where everybody thinks they know the answer because they went to school. Mm -hmm. Don't don't assume you know you've got the answer because you knew what worked for you uh, at your school. Do listen to the experts. Listen to Ali and Lorna, uh, and that will help. And then you will and you will put your money somewhere which will make a difference. And there's nothing more rewarding than that. Well, I think it's also important that they go to your website because there's a lot of really good information on your website as well. So thank you, uh, uh, all of you, and over to Zofia. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. We only just scratched the surface, as you said, on this. Um, so we'll be sure to, to come back with some more stuff around education uh, and looking particularly at social investment around it. Thank you all for joining. Thank you for your time. 